Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, second part to Paul's argument about Christian generosity, uh, all centering on this offering they're supposed to be collecting uh, for the Jews in Judea. And the Judean Christians are under severe persecution. Uh, They're having to care for orphans of parents who were martyred and widows who have been left without and people's businesses have been shut down. And and so these are Christians they're never going to meet. Uh, they're not in the same church, local church, but they're part of the God's universal church. And, and so Paul wants them to have a heart to care uh, for one another. And he's going to take two chapters to build that argument. And we're in the second part of that argument this morning. A number of years ago, uh, actually it was probably about 15 years ago, my wife and I uh, were still living in northern Wisconsin. And uh, we were at, working at a camp that was associated with a Bible college. And so Christmas break, you had a longer break. And and so I remember us packing up uh, our, our things, and as soon as we could get out of there, we did. We were going to take a couple weeks and come south and spend some time with my wife's family in Greenville and my family in Baltimore and just celebrate the holidays. We had a wonderful couple of weeks away, celebrating Christmas and New Year's, got back and, and returned to the frozen tundra of northern Wisconsin. Uh, one guy that, that worked there, he said it, it wasn't um, at nowhere, but you could see nowhere from there. Uh, it, it just was middle middle of nowhere. It was it was it was rough and so icy and cold and dark, uh, and so we walked into our apartment. We had a little 950 square foot uh, apartment, two bedroom apartment. And I remember when we opened the door, it was literally like somebody hit you with a baseball bat of stank. It was just overwhelming, and we were like, "Whoa, what happened here?" My immediate thought was that a sewage leak had taken place while we were gone. It was that bad. Um, death smells better than that smell. And so uh, I immediately go on mission. Beth Ann, I, memory serves, is like, I'm not going in there until you figure out what has gone in there and died, and it goes away. And so I first went to the bathroom, toilet was fine, wax seal was fine, no problems, checked everything. Uh, and then we were like human bloodhounds, and that led us to the pantry. I'm like, well, what is this? And we opened the pantry door, and the odor it literally was like a gut punch of stench. It was like a mix of, of rottenness and, and bad eggs and human sweat all rolled into one and packaged in a blowout baby's diaper and handed to you. It was that, like, like honestly, it could have been used to torture terrorists into giving up information. And so we're just like eyes tearing, you know, you're gagging the whole time. Oh, this is bad, pulled off. And what we had done is we had left some potatoes and the potatoes had rotted if you have not smelled rotted potatoes your senses you don't even know the limits of stank that's out there it was just horrific it was like two potatoes that had gone bad and and so like obviously first they just go off into the dumpster but at that point the stench had permeated the like it was like it had soaked into the paint like There was no getting rid of this. Like, we've got every Yankee candle we own burning. I mean, the cacophony of of scents going on. And all it was then was like cinnamon-laced stank. Like, it just was not good. So I drove 45 minutes to Walmart one way. I told you it was middle of nowhere. And I bought every manner. Like, I'm just, like, grabbing off the shelves. So a breeze and air fresheners. I'm I'm looking for anything. Anything that says heavy-duty stink remover, that's going in the cart, right? And I come home, and I'm spraying, and I'm everything. It was like two weeks, man. And for like a week, it was like pine saw scented stank. 
which in some ways only made it worse, right? Like you'd shut the door to the bedroom, light a candle, and just hope that you could get some reprieve for the night. So that's 15 years ago. There is not a trip that the Johns family takes for 15 years that one of the first things I do is check the pantry for potatoes. I don't care if they're two days old from the store. They're going in the trash. It ain't worth it. You don't want that nonsense. And if you doubt me, because there's always doubters, right? You're preaching, you're like, I don't know. You go home, you stick one in a cardboard box. Don't you bring it in your mama's house because she'll hurt you. And you let that thing go rotten. Then go stick your face down in there, and then you come see me next week. Because you're going to learn what I'm saying is true. Nobody wants that mess on them. Now, why do I tell you that? Because stunningly, the picture that Paul is going to give us about Christian generosity this morning is this. Our abundance that we are not generous with stinks. And it smells like death. And it's riddled with maggots. And that's a shocking thing to say. Particularly those of us, and that's all of us, who live and exist in the Western world where the focus is constantly get more. So to be told the Corinthians that it stinks is a shocking kind of statement to make. And so as Paul is advancing his argument this morning, uh, our big idea that we're going to take away is this. Hearts full of Christ actually look for hungry bellies to bless with their riches. When you're given more and you have more, when your heart is already full of Jesus, it's like stuff can't pack into there. And what you don't want to do is take out some Jesus so I can fit in some more dollars. I don't want to do that. So when I'm full of Jesus and God gives more dollars and more stuff, I start looking for who can I give that to. Hearts full of Christ look for hungry bellies to bless with their riches. And when they don't, when they don't, We've got maggots in the pantry. We've got some stink in the house. And this kind of stink, all the pine saw in the world, is not going to get rid of. And so let me just show you how the text is broken down, and we'll read through it this morning. There, there's two things that Paul's doing here. Uh, he's, first of all, going to deal with miscommunications. There's three misconceptions or miscommunications that possibly could exist with the Corinthians. He started with this illustration of the Macedonian Christians last week, uh, poverty-stricken believers who out of their poverty raised money to give to, Judean, to the Judean Christians, right? And, and so he used that example. Because he used that illustration, Paul's very insightful. He understands there's probably some practical misconceptions that now exist in the Corinthians' mind. So the first thing he wants to do is, or one of the things he wants to do is give us these three misconceptions and clarify them for us. And then the next thing he wants to do is he wants to wreck our world with the way we think about generosity. And Paul knows that most people's stories stick with you longer. And so this is one of those moments that the perfect illustration will help this truth go deep in our hearts and stick with us. And so I, I want it to stick with us that abundance kept for us stinks like death and we got maggots in our pantry when we do that. And so let's read the text, and what we'll do is kind of reverse it in the sense that the illustration Paul gives at the end to force the reader to think back through. So we're going to start with the illustration, and then use that as a framework to help us understand the text. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you've got your Bibles, open them up, follow along as I read them. I'm going to pick up in verse 8, 
read down to the end of this pericope, this section in verse 15. Paul says this, I say this, saying what? Give out of love and see excel that you act in this grace also. In other words, excel in generosity. I say that not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. And so this illustration, the illustration is found there in verse 15, and it's all about maggots and manna. What Paul is doing is he's actually quoting from Exodus 16. And so in Exodus 16, the, the phrasing shows up this way. The people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, that's about two liters, with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. This is all about the collection of manna. Now, some of us are really familiar with that story in the Old Testament. Some of us may not be as familiar with that story. So, quick reminder, children of Israel are now going to be a nomadic people for about 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Uh, you can't really grow grain crops when you're nomadic. Uh, on top of that, you can't really grow grain crops in the wilderness. Not really conducive for it. And so it would take a lot of time, a lot of treating the soil, a lot of fertilizing. And so the people are going to go without. And so what God does uh, is he says, I'm going to give you manna from heaven. It's really a form of bread. Uh, it, was, it was apparently very, uh, very light. It was incredibly sweet. Uh, it, was, it was sustaining to them. Uh, and they were told to go out every morning. It actually would appear on the ground. This is a miracle. It would appear on the ground like dew on the grass. And they could go out and they could collect. And he told them to collect roughly two liters worth for every person of the household, collected all in the morning. And the Bible actually says by the time the sun would come out, the same way the dew would burn off the ground, the manna would be gone. So you had to do it every single morning, collecting this, uh, and, you, and this would provide your bread for you. This would provide sustenance for you. It's, it's, it's literally bread from heaven. The bread is an everyday necessity for sustenance. They need the complex carbohydrates in order to have the energy to get through the day. Bread is life throughout the Bible. They can't grow these crops. They can't meet their own needs. They're not going to have food for the bellies of their children, and God is going to meet their needs. There's so many spiritual truths that are packed into that one occasion with the nation of Israel that lasted for some 40 years. We need God every day for our needs. They were being taught by God. Every morning they would start their day bright and early, uh, oh, dark 30, with a reminder, we need God. It's no wonder then, when you fast forward to the New Testament, and Jesus is teaching his disciples and us how to pray, one of the things we pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer is what? Give us this day our daily bread. It's a hearkening back to this moment. 
The reminder that you and I need God every day to survive was an intended spiritual truth. Uh, uh, it's far better than anything they could provide for themselves. Now, maybe your grandma was like my grandma, and she made the world's best biscuits from scratch. But no one is going to ever make bread as good as manna. It's heavenly bread. It's God's bread. God's nourishment of our souls is far better than anything that this world could ever offer us. I'm going to say that again. God's nourishment for your soul is far better than anything this world could ever offer to us. And so it's no wonder then that we're told in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. Why is God being likened to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Maybe no one in this room understands starvation, but we all at least understand being really hungry and being given something really good to eat. Um, my, my wife and mother-in-law, if we're going to go out to a nice dinner in the evening, they like go on starvation diet because they want maximum room to delight in the goodness that they're going to experience, right? They'll skip breakfast, skip lunch. I'm, I'm living on water because I'm going to Roost Chris tonight or California Dreaming. I'm going to get something good. I want to enjoy that salad with the croissant with the honey on top of it. You're like, that's not fair, Steve. I'm hungry. Good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so it's no wonder it harkens back to the same kind of thing. It's a food in a dry and weary land. Uh, they, when, you, when, you, when you're out, it, it's funny to me, and I've, I've joked about this before, because we've got some families in our church that love camping. I, I love camping too. It's called the Hilton, right? So there's some people that love camping. And the funny thing, the ironic thing to me about people who love camping is most people who love camping try to camp and make it as much like they're not camping as possible. And I've never understood that concept, right? So, so it's like they want to make it as homely as possible while I'm out. It's like a challenge, right? And my, my experience is this. Like our ancestors did all that, so I don't have to do that anymore. But they want to go, but it's really hard. You're never going to. And I know some of you make some amazing campfire meals. I'm not doubting that. But it's never going to be as good as what you can make on Thanksgiving Day in your kitchen. It's just not. And so the Jews are out in the wilderness. They're the best cook in the camp is never going to be able to make it as good as what they're gathering from God every morning. It's better than what a king would eat. No wonder it's a miracle that foreshadows thousands of years later, Jesus, King Jesus, standing on the wilderness plains, feeding 5,000 men. And so it's almost like ancient Israel got to eat like a king, and Jesus, the true king, shows up, and he feeds the people. It's life itself. Bread is life. Without the bread, they're going to die. They have no hope of feeding themselves. No wonder Jesus calls himself the bread of life in John 6, 35. And then when we even celebrate communion, when he institutes communion, what does he say? Take and eat of this bread, this my body broken for you. All those truths are packed into manna from heaven but that's not the one that paul centers on instead paul centers on a dynamic so that he can talk about generosity and he says whoever gathered much verse 15 had nothing left over whoever gathered little had no lack so let's talk about when you lack how, how would that even happen because all the jews are supposed to get up in the morning they're all supposed to gather an omer two liters or so of this manna from heaven and so why would someone not have enough? Why would somebody get to the end of the day and not have enough for dinner? 
Now, one of the obvious reasons is could be laziness. Now, we're not going to spend time there because the New Testament is actually really, really clear. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And he makes that point in 2 Thessalonians because it was another city full of persecution. And so you had believers in Thessalonica saying, Jesus is coming back, let's quit our jobs. And then Jesus didn't come back right away and ain't got no job. They want other people to foot the bill for them. And Paul's like, if you don't work, you don't eat. Stop being lazy. Any man that doesn't provide for his own household is worse than a heathen and infidel in 1 Timothy. They should even be disciplined out of the church. If you have somebody in your church and they don't want to work, they expect to freeload everybody else. They, they should, they're not a part of the church. God has called us to work and to keep. So we're not going to deal with laziness. So we're, so we're not talking about um, the Jew. He's in his tent. He takes his family out to gather their manna. And his next door neighbor doesn't bother to do it. And then he's hungry. He lacks. But there's all kinds of other reasons why you might be in need, right? Like, what do you do if, if um, you've got a newborn in the tent? Well, mama ain't going out and collecting. And, and maybe for whatever reason, dad's been all up, up all night with the baby, and he wasn't trying to be lazy, but he slept past dawn. Just because he's exhausted, right? You lose more sleep the first year as a couple with a newborn than you do as a medical student who's an intern. They famously lose sleep. That was just blessed Dalton and Bethany right there. That moment, that was just for them. And so maybe you have lack because you didn't be able to, you weren't, maybe you have lack because you're a widow or widower and you were mourning and you were sad and, and you had, maybe you have lack because physically you got hurt or you were sick. Like, like maybe you had lack because one of your kids went through a growth spurt and suddenly, suddenly they grew six inches and your grocery budget blew up by 200 bucks, right? Maybe you had lack because what you used to gather isn't enough. There's all kinds of really good reasons why you'd get to the end of the day and you'd have run out. Maybe you have lack because when your husband was out there walking that day, he met a sojourner, a stranger who was still in the land of the wilderness, and he invited, as he should, invited them to come to your house to eat. And you're like, hello, there's not enough. There's all kinds of reasons why you might have enough why you might get to the end of the day and be lacking. But the quote here says, no one who lacked, no one who gathered little had, like, that never happened. And so your immediate thought would be, how would that not happen? The clear link of the illustration is this is like the Judean Christians. They don't have enough, but he's saying they are not going to go without. Well, the answer to that is those with abundance. Those with excess would help them out. It's really that simple. It's not a hard concept. I got more than I need. You don't have enough to meet your needs. I give you out of my abundance, so you've got enough. It's, it's really that factual. And this is really where the genius of God's plan is revealed. Let's talk about stingy neighbors. Let's talk about Corinthian Connor is out there. And he got more than he needs, and he's next to Judean John, and he don't want to help his needs. Why would a person refuse to give their neighbor what they need? Why would they refuse to be generous with their abundance? Well, we can come up with all kinds of reasons, right? Uh, well, it's only one meal they're going to miss. They can get up in the morning and get some more manna. I don't know them that well. Were they really that tired? They should have planned better. If they worked as hard as I did, they'd have plenty. Maybe God wants to teach them with a hungry belly 
to be better organizers of their resources. But Paul's illustration playing out in this text narrows the options substantially. And so we need a couple more truths about manna to help us understand that. What do you do with the leftovers? Well, the text in Exodus goes on this way. The people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Why would you be so willing to give it away? Well, an industrious person, if without this, the genius of this plan of God, if you were a really industrious person, I could easily see you waking up Sunday morning. They didn't gather Saturday. That was their Sabbath. On Friday, they actually gathered double, and it would last them all day on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. But on Sunday again, they would have to get up, go out, gather, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so it's amazing. If you had leftovers Friday night, it lasted through Sabbath. So you didn't have to go out and gather. Um, But if you had leftovers on any of the other days, the next morning, you would go to your pantry and be meted, be met with maggots and stank. I don't have to take a poll to know how many of the, the ladies in our church would say, I would love to have some world class stank in my pantry accompanied with worms and maggots in my jars. That's just, that doesn't bother me, Steve. That's extra protein. No, ma'am. Ain't nobody going to want it in their place. A really industrious person might, might say, you know what? I got a busy week. I'm going to go out on Monday, and I'm going to collect all that I need for the whole week. I'm going to just get it all out of the way. And, and in that way, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I, I can sleep in. I, I can do something else with my time. I, I can, I, I'm going to be busy, and so let me do this. And God said, no, sir, because I want you to know that you need me every day. Now, I know there's none of us in this room that ever approaches the spiritual meat of God's word with the idea that I got my fill on Sunday and I don't need it every day. I'm sure none of us operate that way, right? So God is genius in this because he's removing all these opportunities from them. And so the result is, it'd be like somebody giving you five dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. And they're amazing, and they're hot and fresh. And you want to eat them, and you eat your fill, and you still got leftover. And I just picked a crazy number, because I got to believe nobody's going to make their way through five dozen. And if you're like, you haven't seen me in Krispy Kreme, then you just up your number to whatever your delight is. But if you got to the end of the day, and let's just say you got a couple dozen donuts left, and they're still as warm and as fresh and as amazing, it's 6 o'clock at night, you're done. Now, you and I would say, well, my Krispy Kreme aren't going to go bad. I'm going to just shut that lid. I'm going to enjoy them the rest of the week. But if you knew, you knew you'd wake up tomorrow and two realities would exist. One, there'd be another six dozen sitting at your front door. And the ones you have left over are going to be riddled with maggots and they're going to stink. You're going to wake up 
from dirty diaper, rotten egg, gone bad potato stank in your house. What are you going to do with them? Who wouldn't just take them and go outside and say, anybody need some? I got more coming tomorrow. And these are not going to be good by then. The genius of this was God was compelling the covenant community to care for one another by law. He had to enact consequences in such a way that would force them to love somebody else. You'd make sure you got rid of the extra. You'd have no problem giving extra to your neighbor. You'd have no problem making sure they had enough. If your kid suddenly got invited to have dinner at somebody else's house, so his portion is sitting there extra, you'd want to find somebody that needed the extra manna that you had planned for. Because none of us want stinking maggots in our food in the pantry. This is the genius. This is the illustration. Now what about the misconceptions? And so we can walk back through and understand what he's saying. First misconception we see in verse 8. And the misconception is that Paul's making them do this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Excuse me, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is is genuine. On the first day of every week, in 1 Corinthians 16, he told them to do this. First day of every week, set aside some for this offering for the Jews. Now, it's amazing because 1 Corinthians, let me just read it to you, 16, 1 and 2. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, these are the saints in Judea, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. Now, I just want to be honest, that sounds an awful lot like a command. I mean, just, we'll just play that role out. So I'll just pretend for a moment, I'm telling you, hey, we're collecting an offering for uh, the believing churches in Indonesia. We've got Jonathan and Sarah Farmer over there, and um, we'll just say they're hit by floods and tsunamis, and so the churches uh, that we know of through our missionary, we have every confidence these are believers, they know Christ, they're hurting, they're, they're going without, and so I said, you know, we're going to collect an offering. Why would we do it every single week? Because what you're able to give over time is going to be more than what you can give in a moment. Um, and so we're going to collect an offering for three months every single week so we can just send all that. Church isn't going to keep any of it. We're going to send it. We've done that a few times with a few needs that we've been made aware of. And so that's what Paul wants them to do. Now, if I said we're going to do this, now, you know you have the liberty to give or not to give. You know that Darren and I are not running around with a checklist who gave and who didn't. We're not, that's not the way we operate, the way we think. But it's still going to feel like a command. And that's what Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 16. On top of that, on top of that, he had every right to command them to do this. He had the right because what does Jesus say? Love your neighbor. He could have appealed to Jesus saying, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. He could have appealed to James, uh, the, the, the lead elder at the church in Jerusalem, who's already written the letter of James, where he's told people, you, you show me your faith, great. Show me your works. And he illustrated that significantly in the book of James with what? Caring for the naked and the hungry. Paul could have appealed to all of that and commanded the church in Corinth. Now, you stop giving, stop your nonsense, and start giving again. He could have been that blunt with them, and he'd have been right to do so. They were disobedient. They were being lazy about this. But Paul knows that by giving the example of the Macedonians, Paul knows that by what he said in 1 Corinthians 16, they might interpret this as a command, and he wants them to not have that misconception. 
Paul knows that communication is really, really hard. And he wants to clarify it. You've heard me say this before. Whenever you're talking to someone, you have to work very hard to communicate clearly because there's four people talking. There's what Steve intends to say, what I actually say, what you hear me say, and what you thought I said. Why why do we ever have communication struggles, right? Uh, Different counselors estimate different numbers, anywhere from as low as 70% to as high as 90% of communication struggles in our marriages, or struggles or fights in our marriages are related to communication struggles. Like this, this separates friends, it's really hard. Paul knows it's hard. Paul doesn't want them to have this misconception that he's telling them, commanding them to do this. Instead, he's wanting them to do this, and he gives us the reason in verse 8. And this is, gives us some real wisdom for how we disciple others. I don't say this. I say this not as a command. I'm not commanding you. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. I gave you the example of the Macedonians not to tell you that you have to do this, but to give you an image of love so that you would understand you can imitate love also. You can showcase love. Now, As Paul does this, this is just a golden moment that I cannot pass by of wisdom in in discipleship. And so whether it's you as a parent, whether it's discipling a friend, a neighbor, uh, another another believer in the church or out of the church, uh, uh, working with someone, and you're trying to help them to grow to be more and more like Jesus. That's really what the core of discipleship is. We're going to push each other to be like Jesus. There are lots of things you could command someone to do. And it would be right for them as a Christian to do. But there's a wisdom at times of giving them the space to demonstrate growth. Give them the room and the flexibility to show that they're learning the lessons. That the Spirit is at work in them, changing them. Now that takes immense discernment. Uh, Particularly if you think about that with a baby Christian um, uh, and or raising physically a child where there are things you tell them, you, look, you need to do this, right? Like, I would have no problem looking at someone very new in the faith and say, hey, I want to help you because you need to spend time in the Word every day. And so let me help you get on a schedule. Let me help you understand what that looks like. Let me help keep you accountable that way. As a person grows, though, you want to give some room and some space for them to mature in that area and help demonstrate their desire for the Word and longing for the Word to help them chase it on their own. And that's what Paul's doing here. Paul could have commanded them, Paul could have told them, but he wants to give space for the Corinthians to demonstrate a heart of love. Paul knows they really should do this. They really should. It's going to be really hard for the Corinthian to go to bed at night with all their abundance and not give to the Judeans who are in desperate need and still claim, I love my neighbor. Like Paul knows that. And he's teaching them how to think about it, but he's giving space for room and growth. Can I just tell you, learn to celebrate the victories when you work with other people and give them some space for growth. Understand, and live in the reality, discipleship and growth are messy. They don't just click overnight, right? (laughs) Like, you could even, you know, sometimes I think we could be prone to think this. If I just change the way I think about this spiritual issue, then all the change is done. If I just change the way I think about being generous, then all the change is done. No, it's not. You, you could change how you think about being generous. You still got to figure at the end of the day how much I'm going to write that check for. What do I really need? How do I function through needs? 
Uh, how do I realize where there is abundance and where my needs really are? And, and which part of this savings is appropriate to save? And at what point does it become hoarding? At what point is this enjoying the gifts that God has given to me, Ecclesiastes? And at which point is this me making treasures on earth? All that's going to take discernment and it'd be really hard and take time. And so discipleship is messy. And just because you change the way you think doesn't mean we change overnight. That's part of the process. It's not all the process. So as we work with people, give them some space to grow and to change. Celebrate victories and steps in right directions. Don't rob them of the opportunity to demonstrate that God is at work in them. If Paul makes this a command at this point, he's going to rob the Corinthians of the chance to demonstrate joyful love for others as a sign of their growth. Think about the difference. If Paul said again, I'm giving you a command, start taking this offering up again, then Titus shows up with Paul to collect the offering. Well, it has one image, but how would you not wonder that they only do it because they were told to do it? As opposed to now him showing up, every red cent that comes in was their choice. And it demonstrates Jesus has been at work in them. And God gets the glory, and their hearts get encouraged. Their manna is from God. Those Jews in the wilderness, the manna was from him. You see, all too often, unfortunately, we think, I have because I worked hard for it. That's the way we think. And, there's, and the, the reason we think that is because there's a nugget of truth in it. He who doesn't work should not eat. But we live in a kind of world where people get diseases when they're not supposed to. And people get hurt when they've done nothing wrong. And people lose jobs because of corruption at the top or just because of a swing in the market. We live in a kind of world, listen to me now, that people have lack for lots of reasons that are outside of their control. And it's not their responsibility. It's in the sovereignty of God. And so we need to stop thinking that I have abundance because I've earned abundance. And I'm owed abundance. No, you're not. They would go out every morning and that manna was there for everyone to collect. All the Jews. They didn't walk out of their tent. There was more manna in front of my door than in front of your door. It was from God. And there it was. All you had to do was use your God-given strength to go out and collect it. Work. Eat. And if your neighbor doesn't have enough, what are you going to do with it anyway? It's just going to be maggot-filled and stinking in the morning. Why wouldn't you give it away? Paul is giving them the opportunity the same way God was giving the Jews the opportunity in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, he had to bring some law down on it, didn't he? He had to inject maggots and stink in it, or what would they have done? Hung on to it. Because I know I'll need it eventually. I'll use it eventually. And Paul understands the new covenant community of the church should not have to be whipped with the law to love their neighbor. And so he gives them freedom. He gives them the opportunity to decide when and where we have extra. We need to stop thinking first and foremost about how we can consume the extra. And we need to ask first and foremost, is God giving me the opportunity to give it generously and joyously to someone who has needs? 
you know, there's been folks in this church that have done that over the years, and, and probably many more times than I'm aware of, but, but I just know specifically, I've had folks come to me and say, look, I don't, it's not a blank check, right? I don't have endless resources, but they became aware of somebody's need in the body. Maybe they just saw physically there was a need, or they saw uh, financially there was a need. They perceived there might be a house on the, and they said, look, I, it may not be blank check, but I think I could give into this would you mind, if you become aware of a need uh, for this person or this, I don't know what God's doing, but just let me know. I'd love to just give in to that. That's manna thinking. I got more than I need, and if there's, if there's a need, I want to use it. We need to think first and foremost that way. Second misconception is I love them more than I love you. <laughs> Paul knows that they might think this way. In verse 10, in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. They got real excited, 1 Corinthians 16, when he told them. They really wanted to do it, and he's going to this yearning to love others. And so they weren't just practically doing it, but they wanted to do it. So now, verse 11, finish doing it well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. The damage to not being generous is primarily to those who have abundance. Now, now to be clear, right, if you don't have enough, you're hurting. To be very clear. And I know some of us in this room have experienced that. Some of us have never experienced that concept. Some of us have, where there's just not enough. Some of us have experienced digging through sofa cushions for change. Just enough because you, and you know exactly, you know exactly what a loaf of bread costs with tax. So you can buy some bread, some peanut butter and jelly, just have something to eat. You know exactly what it costs. And you're just digging through for change so you had enough to put on the table that night. Some know what that's like. And so to be very clear, that's a hard place to live. It is profoundly, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically exhausting to be there. They're going to have need. But let's go back to the wilderness. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. Tomorrow morning, there'll be food there. And as much as you need to eat, there'll be more manna on the ground. And by using this illustration, Paul is pushing against this misconception that the Corinthians may believe that this is actually just about the Judeans. You see, the Macedonians, how much could they have really given? They were impoverished. But the Corinthians, they got some dime. And so it would be easy for some to, again, falsely accuse Paul, think evil of him, and think Paul's just trying to get into my pocket because he cares more about the Judean Christians. You know what? This is a guilt complex that Paul has because he was one of their persecutors anyway. This is just because Paul himself was a Jew and he wants the Jews to have more. They could have thought all these kinds of lies. And when Paul is telling them, no, I'm actually giving you this opportunity because it's for your good. The one who's going to suffer the most is the one who has abundance and doesn't use it. That is mind-warping for us, but it's biblical truth. The one with the greatest consequences is not the one who needs to be served. It's the one who could serve, but won't. It damages you. And Paul just points to two damages for the Corinthians here. One of them is a lack of integrity. You simply can't be trusted. You started to do it, you said, I desire to do it, and now you've quit doing it. I want to give you the opportunity to have some integrity. 
to do what you said you were going to do. Lying is a moral issue. And he's saying when we call out, I'm going to do this and I don't do it, you really are a liar. But on top of that, it takes grit to serve. Serving and giving generously is not easy. It's going to cost you. And we know this in our culture. This is why you'll see so many fundraising efforts out there where it'll be like, for the cost of a cup of coffee, right? Then you can do this. Could you be willing to give up your coffee for this? And this, what's funny is when you read the sociological papers on, on giving and generosity and, and look at the psychology behind it, people don't actually go without their coffee. The vast majority of people don't suddenly choose to not spend a dollar on a cup of coffee, which I don't even know where you can get that anymore. Maybe seniors discount McDonald's. I don't, that may not even be a buck these days. Who knows? Um, so let's just say five dollars. You know, or I think I think you can get a grande, just straight coffee, about two seventy-five at Starbucks. People don't suddenly skip buying their coffee every day. They but they give. You know what that tells you? The money was always there. But the psychology of it is, if I feel like I'm going without then I feel like I'm suffering with them and I'm not such a bad person. That's, actually, that's what they're doing. And, and Christendom has picked up on this. When there's Christian fundraising efforts, frequently it'll be that, for the cost of a cup of coffee, for the cost of your internet, whatever. Something, they just try to pick something, it's not too big of a number, it's in that perfect framework. And the reality is Paul wants them to learn some grit here. Because it takes, it's hard. But they've already experienced what it's like to start the job, but not finish the job. He's concerned not with how much will be raised for the Judeans. He's concerned for the Corinthian soul, with their lack of integrity, their lack of grit, their lack of love. And so he's given them this opportunity. It's not that he loves the Judeans more than the Corinthians. He's actually really burdened for the Corinthians. Third misconception you see in verses 12 through 14. And it's that money is what matters most to Paul. Now, they've already accused Paul of this. They've accused Paul in various ways of just being in it for the money. And it's kind of weird because they make fun of Paul for being impoverished himself and having to work. But then they kind of falsely also accuse him of only caring about money. And Paul's aware that by renewing this opportunity to give, there could be a miscommunication about some, man, Paul's going back to this again? It's all about the money. And so Paul wants to clarify this for him. So this way he says it, pick it up in verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Paul's emphasis on the Macedonian poverty and their giving beyond their means could have been misconstrued by the Corinthians that Paul wants to flip the script. And Paul wants the Corinthians to give until they are impoverished so that the Jews are wealthy. And he wants to clarify, that's not what I'm saying at all. Later, he's going to make this, this phrase even more clear, because you get to verse 14, it seems confusing. Your abundance at the present time supplies their need. Their abundance may supply your need. So as Paul's saying, the Corinthians are going to give out of all their money till they're poor, that's going to enrich the Jews till they're rich, and then out of their abundance, they're going to give till they're poor, and that we're going to have this seesaw? Or is he socialist, socialistic and communistic? That we'll just pull all the money together, right? Whatever that money amount is, and then we'll divide it equally for everyone. Is that, so there's fairness in that sense. 
No, and, and this is why when we go verse by verse, we're not able to take the whole section, but Paul's going to expand our understanding of what he means here by generosity and abundance when we get later in the chapter. And so just fast forward, just so I can, I can prove this to you from the text, so you understand it. 2 Corinthians 9, um, verse, verse 8. Um, let me pick up in verse 6 just so we can see the context. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8 here, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's not just talking about money. See, Paul's going to expand this idea out so that when we think about Christian generosity, we think about every commodity that we steward. All things in all sufficiency. So we may abound in all or every good work. The abundance that the Jews will bring is fellowship, community, and praise to God. And so what he's saying is, and I'll just, I'll just give you this experientially. So as people have given to us, particularly over the last seven months, a frequent prayer of mine has been this for them, whatever that gift has been. If it's been monetary, it's been a meal, a gift card, service, uh, picking up my kids, driving my kids, um, caring for us, watching my kids, spending time, texting. A frequent prayer has been this, God, would you, whatever way would bless them the most? I don't care what that is. God, you know, I don't know. So if you need to give them time, if you need to give them energy, if you need to give them strength, if you need to give them some money in their bank account, if you need to provide some food in their pantry, if you need to encourage them with friendship because they've encouraged me with friendship, God, would you just pour out blessing on them? And so I just want you to know, if, if you've given that way, you're being prayed for that God would just open the floodgates of heaven and bless your soul. And I'm expecting God to do that for you. Now, if we just went back to base level, how many of you would like people to be praying for you that God would just open the storehouses of heaven and pour out his blessings on your soul? Like, I want that. Now, how would you pray that for me? Right? Like, yes. So that the abundance of God, he might meet your needs. He's not in this for money. Paul wants the Corinthians to experience the blessing of God through loving others, caring for them, experiencing their friendship, their compassion, their love. Paul is explicitly not expecting them to become impoverished for the Judeans to become rich. Could a Jew in the wilderness end the day with more manna than their neighbor? Obviously. But guess what? They're both equal in the morning. Because if you ended the day with more than your neighbor, you start the morning with maggots and stink. You've got to clean that jar out and go collect, start afresh. And so Paul is teaching them and us that with manna, it was all about God's law. I had to deal with this covenant community because it's a mixed bag. There were, there were believers traveling through the wilderness, they're Jews, but then there were lots that weren't. They didn't believe and trust God. And so there's Jews, and it's evidence with the way they dealt with their abundance. They gathered all, like you can just see them out here scrounging, like pack it in, pack it in, get an extra jar. Man, this is good stuff. This tastes good. It's amazing. Moses said it's going to stink and have maggots in the morning. Yeah, what does he know? Who knows? Let's test. Let's see. You know, who knows what God might do, right? We'll spiritualize it. And then you wake up in the morning, it's like, wow! 
You know what's really interesting about that? It took us a while to eat potatoes again. And potatoes are good. Well, they make good baked potato. Right? Cut that open, put a little butter, sour cream, bacon bits on that, some cheese. That's nice. Nice. Mashed potatoes, a little sour cream mixed in there, whip that up real good. I like them old style, a little bit of chunk on them. I know some people like them smooth. I like it, mm, I want a little chunk. I want to know them homemade potatoes. Not that powdery stuff you mix and stuff with. That's all right. That's all right, but it's a good potato. It took me a while. Scallop potatoes, those are good. Cheesy sauce on them. That's nice. That's nice. My grandma used to make fried potatoes. That's not good for you, but it's good for you. I didn't want to touch a potato. Mm-mm. Isn't it funny how God's abundance can become your cursing? Because you woke up one morning and it stank. It had maggots. You know, it's interesting. We're not gonna we're not gonna suddenly get a call from Wells Fargo or Truist or the credit union that you've got maggots and stink in your bank account. But it's there. Things like entitlement. I have the resources, so God must mean them for me. I have abundance, so I have a right to that. Can we really think about our abundance if we're thinking about it as manna? I don't think we can. I think maggots and stench like the judgment of others. They are in need because they are not as smart, hardworking, or obedient as I am. They have need as a consequence from God. Can we think that way and at the same time believe that my resources are manna? Maggots like my generosity is driven by percentage instead of by love and gratitude. You know, the same God who had to give the law and the consequence of maggots and stench to manna had to give the, the law of exactly how much to give. That, that concept of this is your percentage to give does not actually exist in the New Testament. It's actually grace, joy, generous giving, sacrificially. So that you can advance the gospel around the globe, so you can meet the needs of other hurting believers and others hurting even in your community. It's not like I wrote my check for the 10%, so I've checked the box. It doesn't exist. And the reality is when we think that way, all too commonly, it just becomes a law to fulfill instead of needing to be lovingly discerning. Maggots in our pantry like a raise means I get to consume more. Not, not, it doesn't even cross our minds that I'm now free to be more generous to the hurting. Can we really think that way when we get a raise and, and, and it would be like, can you imagine a guy at the end of the day with all this extra manna? It was like, wow, we didn't even eat as much as we thought we were going to do. God must want us to just eat more. Maggots, like all my justifications for not being generous, I'm just going to put it down here, are really just thinly veiled coverings of our stinginess. I'm afraid that Christians are too much like the Corinthians and maggots are a worm designed by God to eat decaying, rotten things. That sounds an awful lot like the kinds of things that Jesus said, moth and rust destroy and thieves steal. Rotten, decaying things. 
What if instead of our mindset being, I want more money, our mindset was, I'm afraid of more money? And so when God gives it, we're asking, what can I give it to? Where is there needs that I can fuel? I think all too often the maggots are eating away at our souls. And it's a lack of faith. You know, why would someone try to collect more than they're ever going to be able to eat that day? And why would someone try to hoard something overnight that you know is going to stink in the morning? Do you know why? You know why? Because you don't trust that God's going to supply in the morning. You don't really think that he will. He has met your needs. Jesus has met your needs. And so then you go to the other verse in the passage. The one that if maybe some of you were painting, why did he miss this one? Verse 9. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Why do we act like we're too poor to be generous? We have all we need in Jesus. The manna was to be a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of Jesus meeting your needs every day to your absolute fill. And he doesn't want you pillowing your bed at your head at night thinking, I don't need more of Jesus in the morning. I got enough from this morning. He wants us operating in a way that says, I got full of Jesus today, and guess what I got coming tomorrow? More Jesus. And guess what I got coming the next day? More Jesus. And you know what? Today, it feels like I got more Jesus than I can handle. Let me give you some Jesus. He says that's the way we should think about it. We should think about our money and our resources, our time, our energy, our talents, because it's generosity about all of it, right? It's not just our checkbook. It's not just because sometimes meeting a need, they don't need money. They need something else. They need a job or they need training or they need education or they need care, they need support, they need encouragement, they need friendship. They need all kinds of things and you've got these resources and they're in abundance and you say, how can I bless you with Jesus? And this is what we're saying. When we are generous to others, we are saying, taste the Lord and see that he is good. Why on earth then would we hold on to our abundance thinking that our hoarding is good for our souls? I want you to know this. All our hoarding does is decay and stink and create maggots. You didn't get more of Jesus just for your consumption. You got more of Jesus so you could give him away. And you'll never give him away so much that you go into need. Because his mercies are new every day. And he will feed our souls when Jesus fed the 5,000 dinner, you know what they came looking for the next morning? Breakfast. And when Jesus said, I give myself to you, I said, we don't want that. Is there a chance that you're here today and you want the blessings Jesus would bring, but you don't want the Jesus who brings them? Is there a chance that maybe this is even offensive to you as a believer? Because I'm telling you, the abundance blessings God has given to us are intended for us to meet others' needs, and that's offensive to you. And I just want you to know, you don't get the abundance of Jesus without also what he wants you to do with it. That's to love and serve others. You see, the core of the gospel is we are selfish people hoarding our manna. We're like a lost Jew. It's like, nah, let me crave it in. Hey, did you hear so-and-so doesn't have it? Yeah, they can get their own. They'll be fine in the morning. And then Jesus shows up and we look at it and realize, no, the manna, the gift, the blessing of God, of Jesus himself, the bread from heaven to me. He said, oh, here. 
You see, the core of the gospel is I'm set free from my stinginess and selfishness to love God and love others. And so I say, like Paul, I don't command you to be generous. But I'm going to give you the opportunity to live life on mission, looking for needs that you might give manna, that you might give Jesus into, so that others might taste and see that the Lord is good. Hearts full of Christ. You're packed. You can't, you can't get another bite in. Hearts full of Christ look for hungry bellies to bless with their riches. Father, thank you for feeding our souls with Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would set us on fire. Father, I'm, I'm going to ask you boldly this morning that this week you put in our faces needs of others. Needs of time, of energy, of talents. Father, physical resources, spiritual, emotional resources. Father, I'm going to ask you to just confront us this week. Or may, may, may every day we turn around and it feel like we're just bumping into somebody, a situation, a person that has needs, people near us, people far from us, and then confront us, Father, with this truth, do I have maggots in my pantry? Or will I give it? Will I give it so that they might taste and see that you are good and therefore praise you and glorify you. Father, may we be a people on mission to be generous. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.